So that was something very puzzling for me. Why is it that this instrument of power seemed to be disadvantaging them? This is Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science, as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Doug Lay. And I'm Ryan Wackius. Today in episode 83 of Parsing Science, we'll talk with our first return guest, Manveer Singh from the Department of Human Evolutionary Biology at Harvard University about his research into why shaman healers in a small-scale society off the coast of Indonesia observe costly taboos, such as abstinence and food restrictions, even though they could exploit their position for self-serving purposes instead. Here's Manveer Singh. Hello, my name is Manveer Singh. I just graduated with my PhD from the Department of Human Evolutionary Biology at Harvard. In my research, I look at why human societies reliably develop these complex cultural traditions, these complex cultural practices that exhibit profound similarities across societies. So why do humans everywhere produce music, produce certain kinds of religious belief, produce law, marriage, etc.? And why do those domains exhibit the patterns that they do? So my undergraduate degree It was in human biology, but I studied insects for my undergraduate thesis. I was very into entomology and zoology. And then during my PhD, I became very interested in these cultural patterns. Why do humans develop these these strikingly similar cultural practices? And how can we use evolutionary theory and stuff from cognitive science to start to understand those? And so the research that we are talking about today is a part of this larger project that I have on shamanism. So societies everywhere develop this puzzling practice in which there are specialists who enter trance and provide services like healing and divination. So I've wanted to understand why that is and why shamanism, as well as why other magico-religious practitioners behave in the way they do, why those practices exhibit the features that they do. Manfair conducted his research on Sibirut Island, the largest of the Mentawai Islands, which lie off the western coast of Sumatra in Indonesia. The indigenous inhabitants of the island are also known as the Mentawi, and their population is estimated to be about 35,000. We began our conversation by asking Menvir how he came to select the shaman on Sibirut as the focus of his field research. Yeah, so there were two reasons I decided to go to Mentawai. The first was that they have this very rich indigenous cultural system. They have a rich legal system, they have this system of fines for regulating social conflict, they have a really rich animistic uh, religion, so this rich like shamanistic culture that is quite vital. So I went there for that reason. I also went there because Sibirut Island has this very interesting way in which the, the people are arranged. So they live on these rivers, there are 11 major rivers on the island, and each river has a slightly different dialect, a slightly different religious system, slightly different tattoos, slightly different taboo system. You know, historically, a lot of these people living in different rivers would headhunt each other. And so they have culturally diverged in these slight ways. And so it's an interesting laboratory of how culture changes. You can visit these different sites, these different river cultures, and see which aspects of religion, for example, which remain similar over time and which are more likely to change, which are more variable. So historically, the settlement pattern was that people lived in longhouse communities. So there would be a big longhouse and then a cluster of houses around it. And that would typically be everyone in a single clan. And so 
if you're looking at a single river, there would be this series of longhouse communities, and those would be pretty close to each other, you know, maybe a couple hour walk away from each other along a single river. And then if you want to go from the communities from one river to the communities from another, and those relationships are typically antagonistic, that might take eight hours to 12 hours. Maybe if you're going from one of these lower rivers to one on the top, it might take a couple days if you're, you know, you would be going through the middle of the island. Now the government has created these settlement villages. And so people in the settlement villages are along these different rivers. So people live in these houses provided by the government in the settlement village. And then they'll often also have some house in the woods away from the, from the government settlement village. And some families spend much more time in these forest houses and some nearly exclusively now live in these government settlement villages. In a modern context, taboo is often used to describe something that's considered socially unacceptable or controversial. But historically, a taboo is something that's forbidden for religious or social reasons. Mentawe shamans must observe permanent taboos on various animals, as well as prohibitions on sex and food during initiation and healing ceremonies. Mambir shared his motivations for studying self-denial taboos among these shamans. The thing that inspired me to look at taboos in particular is that I saw that these individuals are highly prestigious. They're highly trusted for their religious expertise. And they seem in some instances to manipulate taboos for their own ends. So for example, there are taboos against anyone other than shamans doing particular dances or singing particular songs, which allows them to exclusively control like certain kinds of entertainment. There are other taboos that prohibit the movement of women when men are out hunting. Those are not really things that the, the shamans are necessarily using to their self-interest, but that the men more generally are. The men seem to manipulate this taboo system in these self-serving ways. So I saw that the shamans seem to have this capacity to manipulate these taboos in self-serving ways, and yet they, they were apparently disadvantaged by them. They're prohibited from having sex all the time. They're prohibited from eating these tasty foods. And so that was something very puzzling for me. Why is it that this instrument of power seemed to be disadvantaging them? And then you see, obviously, that that's a trend more generally, that religious practitioners are very often engaging in these costly behaviors. It seemed not only something particular or peculiar to Mentawe, but a, a more general phenomena. And so what is intriguing is that some of these taboos, there's this belief that if you violate it, you will die. So... If a shaman eats an eel, the shaman will die. There are other taboos where it's believed that if you violate it, you might get sick, you might get this weird illness. The, the point only being that some of these taboos seem more open to violation than others. So it's really believed that they are hurting themselves in that if a shaman has sex, if they you know, work during a healing ceremony, if they eat an eel, then they might run into misfortune, they might get bitten by a snake, in some instances they might die. We first met Manbir in episode 17, when he and his colleague, Sam Mayer, joined us to discuss their research, which indicated that people across the world are able to discern the social purpose of other cultures' songs based solely on how they sound. Such interest in the similarities and connections that span cultural boundaries also led him to the Mentawi. So Ryan and I wanted to learn more about what his specific aims for the project were. So there are these three central questions in this larger project. The first is, what are the taboos on these shamans? So what are they prohibited from doing? 
The second is, are those taboos costly? And the third is, how does observing self-denial, how does observing these taboos affect how people perceive you? The first is just a, a general ethnographic question. If I am interested in understanding why Mentawe shamans are so disadvantaged by the system, it really requires first just documenting what that system is. You know, I don't want to come with all of these assumptions about how that system works or what they're doing. I want to take this more systematic approach. The second question was, how costly are these taboos? And so the reason I focus on that is that there's often this assumption, especially in evolutionary approaches to religion, that various strange behaviors are costly. And some of the hypotheses that I wanted to test for why shamans are observing these taboos assume that those taboos are costly. So before you know, investigating these hypotheses, again, I just wanted to validate that these these taboos are indeed costly. And that's also related to my motivation for looking at this. So if you remember, my motivation is like, these shamans have the opportunity to manipulate the system for self-serving gains, and yet they seem to be disadvantaged by it. So I just wanted to make sure that, you know, to the best of my ability, I wanted to investigate whether they were actually disadvantaged by it. And then finally, I looked at what people's perceptions of these shamans were what their perceptions were when these shamans observed taboos. And the reason for that was that the three hypotheses that I was interested in testing, the hypotheses I was interested in investigating, all look at self-denial as essentially a social tool, a way of changing how people think about you, whether they think that you're more trustworthy or more supernaturally powerful or you know a greater believer in your religious system, whatever that effect is. Uh, all of these hypotheses were about taboos as some kind of social instrument. So I wanted to test those hypotheses by actually looking at how people think about self-denying shamans. The shamans of Mentawe are known as Sikure. They treat illness in healing ceremonies that can last from a single day up to a full week. We asked Manvir to describe what these ceremonies are like. The way that the ceremonies will often work is that pigs and chickens are sacrificed as a part of the healing ceremony. For example, there is this ceremony for removing this punitive water spirit from your house. So if you don't share, this water spirit, which many people describe as a crocodile, this crocodile spirit will come in your house. It'll make you sick. It'll weigh down on your body. So one of the steps in that ceremony is that you have to sacrifice a chicken. Some people will even sacrifice a pig. So it's built into the ceremony, and that meat is then shared with everyone in attendance with special packages going to the shaman both to be consumed there and the shaman gets to take home some food for their family. The shaman getting paid is not contingent on the ceremony working, but the shaman's reputation very much hinges on a perception of efficacy. So some shamans are highly successful. They're called for, I think one shaman was called for a third of the healing ceremonies in my data set. I think I had about 45 healing ceremonies. And then most of the shamans, I think the modal number was one. By healing their patients, shamans benefit through gifts of meat provided by patients and their families. Different interventions require different sacrifices, and many people informally refer to the sacrificed animals as a form of payment. Given that it seemed that there must be a relatively large number of Sakiri and Mentawe, Brian and I wondered if all this economic activity also generates a lot of competition. Yeah, there's a lot of competition. And if people believe that you are someone who is good at being a shaman and, and successfully heals, then they will continue to call you. You will continue to get these packages of meat. But 
it's not acknowledged that it's competitive. So for example, if I ask someone, why did you call these particular shamans to your healing ceremony? Observing, for example, that they're calling the same guys who are always called. They'll say like, oh, you know, this one's my wife's cousin's, uh, you know, spouse. This one is related to me through my mother. But, you know, it's also the fact that everyone is kind of related to each other eventually through these kin networks. And so the reason that they're saying that is that you don't want to demonstrate or indicate that you are at least considering efficacy when you are choosing these shamans. And, you know, I've talked to people and they've been in private, they've been like, oh, yeah, because he's the best. He's really good at kisei, a certain kind of ceremony, or he knows all the songs and really, you know, he has real trance. But if you demonstrate publicly a preference for a certain individual over another individual, this is what people have told me, then if that individual isn't available and other people know that you don't actually want them or you don't think they do a good job, then maybe they won't come. So I, I mention all of that to say that, yeah, I think the competitive aspect is sometimes downplayed, although there is a lot of commentary afterwards about, did they do it right? Was that guy's trance real? You know, does he know all the songs? So there is constant evaluation of their efficacy of their competence. Among the Mantawe clans along each river, shamans have both similar and unique taboos to which they adhere. To answer his first research question, Manvir had to gain a consensus from each clan on exactly what was taboo for shamans in their clan. Doug and I were interested in hearing more about how Manvir went about collecting and analyzing his data. An interesting thing about field ethnography and anthropology is that you can talk to a single person and they can tell you a version of the world. These are the taboos. This is what it means to be a shaman. These are the various spirits. And then you'll talk to another person and you'll see some agreement, but you'll actually see some diversity or some variation. And so there are various tools that anthropologists have developed to try to get some measure of consensus. If we take everyone's responses, if we ask questions in a certain way, can we find what do people actually agree on? I essentially went to these four rivers and in each of them interviewed a bunch of people and asked them what were the items tabooed to shamans. And sometimes, some instances I used a checklist, other times I used free response. And then I used this tool that anthropologists have developed, cultural consensus analysis, to see if among the people in a given community, what are those items that they consensually agree are taboo to shamans. And the way that's computed is a bit complicated. It actually ascribes each individual competence on the basis of how much they match other people. So some person might, all of their answers might be totally different from everyone else. And so they will be underweighted compared to someone who seems to have very high competence. And so I use cultural consensus analysis to pinpoint which items were taboo to shamans in these different rivers. And then I looked across rivers, what are those items that across these four sites are consistently tabooed to shamans? And the idea there was that if something is tabooed to shamans across these four rivers, that until relatively recently, maybe were diverging in their own ways, that would suggest that it's more functionally important. So if in one river, people are tabooed from eating turmeric, but not in the next river, and then the river over 50% of people say it, that one's much less interesting than if in every river, 100% of people say that shamans are, for example, tabooed from eating eels. 
And according to this analysis, I found that there were five food items that are considered permanently tabooed to shamans. And those are eels, flounders, gibbons, a certain kind of squirrel, the three-striped squirrel, and then the white morph of the Simakobu monkey. So there's this monkey, the Simakobu monkey. Uh, it comes in two morphs, white and black, and shamans are prohibited from eating the white ones. So those were like permanent dietary taboos. And then I also had a separate survey to find out what are items taboo to shamans while they're being initiated uh, during their healing ceremonies. And I found quite a bit of variation there, but the most consistent thing was that they are tabooed from having sex. And then below that, I think the next one was that they're tabooed from just like eating freely. They have to eat when they sit down, they have to eat cooked food, which really precludes them from eating quite often. Because in Mentawi, there's this idea that you're, you can just constantly eat. Mandir's second research question investigated just how costly shamans' dietary taboos are to them. The periodic taboos, especially those on sex, appear decisively costly. But the costliness of the permanent dietary taboos was more unclear. So Manbir used ranking tasks to establish the relative cost of abstaining from popular foods, as he describes next. It's kind of tricky. How do you determine how costly it is to give up some item? How, how to determine how costly it is to, for example, stop eating eels or white simakobu monkeys? So I experimented with a couple things. I talked to various people. And the thing I ultimately ended up doing was I essentially like randomly chose 24 edible animals in Mentawe, and then included in those 24 animals were the animals tabooed to Mentawe shamans. And then I sat down with individuals and I went through this convoluted thing, trying to have them rank these 24 items, essentially by how willing they were to give up these items. Uh, and the reason to focus on willingness to give up is that it integrates availability with preference. And so you can do a, a preference ranking task, but someone might really, really prefer monkey, but only have it once a year. And they might, you know, not really prefer sago grubs, but that might be a huge portion of their diet. So the willingness to give up, and I explicitly said this, I said to think both about how often they eat it and how much they prefer it. And I think it, I think it did a good job of actually getting at how costly it would be to give up these various items. So for aquatic species, for eel and flounder, I had to use a, a slightly different method. But regardless, eel is one of the most preferred food items. Eel is among all river animals, and they eat quite a few river species. Eel is the second most item that they were least willing to give up after shrimp. And that's because people have eel quite often. And you get an eel, and an eel is big. It's just like tasty meat. The ratio of good meat to, to junk is, is really high for eel, and it's a big catch of calories. Manvir's first two research questions established that Mentawe shamans observe costly periodic prohibitions, as well as permanent dietary prohibitions with more ambiguous or varied costs. His third and final research question focused on what community members infer about this self-denying of their shamans. To do so, he developed vignettes to probe participants' perceptions about the character's religious belief, cooperativeness, power, and difference from other humans, as he describes after this short break. This episode is brought to you by Altmetric. At Altmetric, we help researchers track and analyze the online activity around scholarly research outputs. And if you like passing science, you may also enjoy our podcast series, The Altmetric Podcast. Join me, Lucy Goodchild, as we explore the science stories that are being discussed the most online so you can find out why. You can find our show on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. 
Now, back to Passing Science. Here again is Manveer Singh. What's striking is there was little variation in how people answered. People pretty reliably said that, you know, they answered positively to the belief questions, positively to the cooperativeness questions. They considered them to be different and they they considered them to be more powerful. And questions were reverse coded. So it's not like they were saying yes to everything. But people seem to have pretty consistent responses to these questions to the extent that it wasn't like all of the power questions moved together and all of the difference questions moved together in a really defined way. And this gets at the larger finding. I mean, the finding is that we found support for all of the hypotheses. But, you know, I'm not sure. Maybe maybe they are treating them all as a single construct. Or maybe maybe it's like a halo effect, but a particular kind of halo effect. Halo effect just being like, you know, you think of someone as positive and that everything else gets carried along with it. You think I'm like good at something and then you also think I'm kind and generous. Also, in the end, it was a field experiment, so we only had 60 participants. It was, of course, very specifically designed for the context, but it's also modular enough that it can be exported and and one can do a cross-cultural study. So we've also run this on Turk with like Americans and with Indians uh, with much bigger sample sizes. And over there, you find much more cleaner discrimination by these sub-constructs. The land that the Mentawi live on is a national park. Add to that that Indonesia is about 4,000 miles away from Cambridge, Massachusetts, and you'd be right to assume that Manbir had to spend extended periods of time on the island, as well as in getting permissions to do so, as he explains next. So I've had to get permission at every administrative level. I mean, in Indonesia in general, there is a lot of bureaucracy. So yeah, so I get permission from the Indonesian government at the top level, the like Department of Research and Technology, and then I get permission from the West Sumatran government, and then I get permission from various local governments on the island down to the government-appointed headman, the village head, the Kepala Dusun and the Kepala Desa. Yeah, so I, I need a lot of permission. I carry around a lot of permissions while I'm in Mentawe. But they have like a sense of value. They have some sense of like how many pigs is equivalent to how many cooking pots is equivalent to how many taro gardens is equivalent to how many machetes because this is how like penalties for crimes work and bride payments work you essentially have to like barter in these currencies and so people in the community also know that if someone catches an eel i will buy it from them so like people will very often ask me for money and i have just a rule that if you have a chicken i will buy it because just giving out money is kind of problematic and creates weird drama, but that is kind of the way that I figured out how to give money in a way that feels fair to everyone. Anthropology has been described as the art of making the familiar exotic and the exotic familiar, and through their theoretical frameworks and systematic methods, anthropologists often make unique contributions to science. Manvir talks with us about what he believes anthropologic methods might offer researchers in other disciplines. So I guess if there's one thing that I would export, it would just be the benefit of anthropology is how like ethnographic qualitative description is given space to breathe. Like we talked a lot about the institution of Sikere, of the of Mentawe shamanism. We talked about how individuals are initiated, how people think about those initiations. We talked about short anecdotes. And of course, any of those can be quantified, or maybe not even any of those, but some of those can be quantified. So I can go around and do a systematic survey but, but I think there's a huge value in qualitative methods, and I think they also allow you to present observations that are hard to, to quantify 
or impossible to quantify, or you have some plan of quantifying them, but there are just many things that, that are relevant to understanding a phenomenon that you think are worth presenting. So what I really appreciate about anthropology is that it has it gives space for this kind of qualitative description and for thinking about all of the different relationships in a system, the relationships between the diet and the history and the particular norms and like their theories of illness, the institution of shamanism, these individuals as people in the community. The ancestors of the indigenous Mentawi people are believed to have first migrated to the region sometime between 2000 and 500 BCE. And Menvir's research with the island shaman offers a fascinating examination of an important aspect of their ancient and complex culture. So to close out our conversation, we asked Manvir to share an experience from his time on Sibirut Island to help us appreciate how this venerable group's lives offers us lessons even today. So this story might go on long. I hope it doesn't, but it was a fun thing that happened, and it was a dramatic thing. In 2017, I was there for most of the year, but I came home for two months in the middle. I wanted to go to some conferences. I wanted to present the data I had so far. I wanted to just like see family. And then I came back, and then I met my assistant at the port town. So I'm getting off the ferry. He is there. And he tells me that we have a problem. And that is that, so the river had flooded and it shifted like 20 meters and it was at the foot of the house. So the house where we lived, it's a, it's a small house. It's a cozy house. And it was about to fall into the river. So I was like, oh no, what are we going to do? And he was like, oh, I have a plan. And what he proposed was that we get a large pig and we call 70 people, seven zero, and we kill the pig and we share it with them. And we ask them to lift up the house and move it five, 10 meters away from the river. And so we finally get up to the village or we get up to where the house was. We get up to Butui. We spend that day going around. We're telling everyone, okay, tomorrow we're going to have a pig. We're going to kill the pig and we're going to move the house. And people are pretty excited. And what they even did was they cut school short by several hours. So school is normally from like, I don't know, 8.30 to 1 or something. And they ended school at 10 a.m. so everyone can go and lift the house, which I didn't want. Of course, I want these kids to go to school. I don't want them to come lifting my house. I don't need them so much. But it's the day of the, the house lifting. And my assistant cannot find a pig. So he's going out to the people who everyone lives on one side of the river and then you keep pigs on the other side so that the pigs aren't eating your bananas and taro and everything. So he went across to the other side of the river. He's trying to find a pig and he just couldn't find a pig. And so it's the day of the house lifting and I just stand in front of everyone and I promise them that I will find them a pig in the coming days. And everyone comes together. They lift the house. I buy a lot of rice and a lot of cabbage, and it all gets cooked up. It's distributed. I write down everyone's name, and I promise in two days I will have a pig. In short, we pay someone to go find a pig because I have to. I had to again go to the port town, which like going to the port town and coming back is a is a day long trip. So I go to the port town. We come back. We have a pig. We slaughter it. We share it with everyone. Everyone's happy. You know, everything resolves. And later we discover that the person who we paid to get a pig actually ended up stealing it from my assistant. So he went to where my assistant kept his pigs and he thought he was stealing someone else's pig and he stole my assistant's pig and essentially uh, we killed that. So that became its own fiasco. But that I, I feel like that just demonstrates a lot of stuff about living in Mentawe. 
the the extent to which the community is so accessible you know how you can draw on these social networks in these particular ways how how giving is a, a means of of payment and the interesting thing was like coming home i really was instilled with the value system they had that was manvir singh discussing his open access article why do religious leaders observe costly prohibitions examining taboos on mentawi shamans co-authored with joseph henrik and published on june 11 2020 in the journal evolutionary human sciences You'll find a link to their paper at parsingscience.org e83, along with transcripts, bonus audio clips, and other materials that we discussed during the episode. If you've got five to ten minutes, we invite you to complete our 2020 listener survey so we can better serve your interests in future episodes. No personally identifiable information is required or recorded, and you can skip any questions you want. If you're up for pitching in, just head over to parsingscience.org survey. Next time in episode 84 of Parsing Science, we'll talk with Tori Howes from Oregon State University and Edward Cassell from Pontifica Universidad Católica de Chile about their research into whether people with narcissistic tendencies are willing to reflect on their mistakes or are instead more likely to throw up their hands and exclaim, no one could have seen this coming. What we're looking at is really more about overconfidence and over arrogance, if you will, and it lies on this continuum of self-perception. Yeah, so, so the difference between narcissism and the NPD, narcissistic personality disorder, is that narcissism is a continuum, right? It's like a personality trait and, and everybody has a little bit of it maybe. But the, the trademark of narcissism is like self-enhancement. We hope that you'll join us again. 